This is Brian Paris with Sounds of Berkeley. Today I'm talking with the harpist Felice Pomeranz, professor of strings at Berkeley and leader of her own jazz quartet. Comfortable in both traditional and improvisational idioms, Pomeranz has recorded and arranged for jazz and classical works and has authored articles and curricular texts on her fluid take on harp repertoire. She's also the owner and founder of Gilded Harps, a music entertainment service specializing in harp music, solos, duos, trios, and ensembles. Elise, welcome to Sounds of Berkeley. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. Well, so the first thing that I thought of is, you know, jazz and harp. I got to hear this. So why don't you, why don't we start things off by uh, cueing us in on a, on a song? Terrific. So I think we're going to do something from Felicidad and uh, goes with my name, of course. And maybe we'll listen to um, Captive in Paradise. Great. Let's take a listen. Felicidad was a recording I did a few years back. Um, I worked with my regular group, Yaron um, Israel on drums and Barry Smith on bass, and uh, my longtime friend and collaborator, Matt Marvolio, who regretfully passed away last summer. Uh, we worked together for a very long time, many decades, and he was my first call flute player, our first, first call jazz guy. We went on many tours together, so it was always a joy to work with him. And um, so it was, it was fun to work with him on several projects, including this recording, which is um, lots of fun and, and um, has some interesting takes. Captive in Paradise actually was based on a, um, a situation that happened to me. My brother lives in the Virgin Islands, so we would go down there all the time. What do you do when your vacation is over and you go to the airport and you're ready to go home and your flight is canceled? And they don't know when they're going to reschedule. So what are you? You're captive in paradise. <laughs> so I went back to the apartment that we owned at the time and wrote this tune. That's great. Great story. Um, and that kind of that kind of gets into this territory of, of where your creativity comes from, where your inspiration comes from. And, and I just wonder, in terms of this sort of novel take on the harp, like sort of taking it out of traditional repertoire and bringing it into more improvisational idioms. I wondered if you could speak to kind of how that, what that road looked like for you and kind of what initiated that or maybe some key moments that, that really defined kind of your direction. So the harp, as most people think of um, in the olden days, way back before I was even around, um, the harp was known as a salon instrument. It was an instrument that the ladies of high breeding would play. After dinner, the guys would go smoke cigars and tell tall tales and impress each other. And the women would go play music, right, before video games and TV and all kinds of things that people do now for entertainment. Um, they would go play music. And um, so the harp, if you were really a very well-bred young lady, you spoke French or other exotic languages, you um, dressed appropriately, you could sew, and you played the harp. <laughs> In fact, Louisa Catherine Adams... Um, the wife of John Quincy Adams, the fifth president of the United States, um, she played the harp. She was English, but she played the harp. Um, and uh, so the harp has always been a, a, a traditionally girl instrument, except in the orchestras, when all the orchestras were comprised of men, 
men played the harp. Um, my last teacher, uh, Bernard Zaguerra, who was in the BSO for 54 years, played the harp and piano, but he was a fine harpist and all the best harpists um, in the major positions and teaching positions were men. Um, but so many women played the harp. And when I was um, very young and I went to Tanglewood and, and then I came to Boston to study, um, I was thinking I was going to be an orchestral musician. But when I got out of school, there weren't any positions open. The only one that was available was the harp in the uh, New Zealand Symphony. And my father wouldn't help me get there. So anyway, but we started playing. I started playing all around town. And then um, eventually we started the Gilded Harps, which we can talk about later. But um, I was seeing that in order to, in order to be um, hired by anybody, it was really important to be versatile. And then I started playing with Matt, and I couldn't understand how he could play around all these things. He could play classical music. He'd play Bach like Bach intended it. But if he were playing a contemporary tune or a Broadway show or anything, he could make it sound like anything. He could sound like Miles Davis. He could sound like Stan Getz. I was terribly impressed. So I said, I have to learn this. <laughs> and Berkeley at that time did not have a master's program, so I went back to New England Conservatory. Um, still, I'm the only harpist to have received a master's in jazz. Wow. So so it's it's fun. And it was really hard convincing them that they needed to just let me play with the cats. So I did. I didn't have a harp teacher. I already knew how to play the harp. But just adapting it to um, the harp was sort of scary and different. And But I've learned so much. And, and my best education, of course, is on the job, playing with um, the people with whom I've had the honor to work. I wonder if, because uh, I, I bet I know the answer is I don't want to make you choose kind of like a favorite in working in, you know, different repertoire, but maybe it's more about what do you like about working in an improvisational mode and versus a classical mode, you know, rather than, because I'm sure it's a, it's a mix or a balance of both those things that you love. But um, I wonder kind of when you want to get inspired in a certain way, like what do you go to or, you know, what do you find in working these different ways? Well, I really enjoy classical music too. I do. I, I enjoy classical music very much. And um, and there's nothing like, of course, the Impressionists. I make my students do all genres because it's important. You can't just play Impressionistic music because you like it. But we all love Debussy, Ravel, and you know that kind of genre. It's beautiful on the harp. There's nothing like a dominant nine chord on the harp. <laughs> but but it's it's different. The The whole psychology of the classical player and the um, immense desire for perfection. If you're taking an audition, you'll be um, um, counted out immediately if you miss one note. And in jazz or improvisational music, that's not what the interest is. You know, you can miss a bunch of notes. There are many, many record recordings, aren't there, in which the, the, the guys made mistakes, played out of tune, what? Whatever. But he or she did a great take because the whole intent was there. The vocabulary was there. The time was there. Didn't really matter. But in classical music, it matters terribly. Every note. Every note counts. Whereas in the, in the jazz world, they seem so much more accepting because it's all, it's all um, inspirational music. You know, it's all creativity. Can't really criti criticize creativity it just is. And that when creativity happens, it's just magic. 
So how can you criticize that? <laughs> you can't give that a D, right? Right, right. If you're in the orchestral world, um, if they have a harp position somewhere for a, a symphony, it's one position because there are no longer two anymore paid positions. There's just one. And um, 300 people apply, and maybe 50, 60 people get to play to audition, and they choose one. Wow. And it pays. <laughs> if it's not the Boston Symphony or the New York Philharmonic, some of these other symphonies that aren't 52 weeks or whatever, you know, they pay $110 a service. Yeah. And you're going to go live in who shot where, <laughs> Arkansas, right. and make that kind of money. And you've practiced your whole life for this. I mean, mm -hmm. it's really hard. Yeah, It's really hard. It's a hard life. And um, that was one of the reasons we started the Gilded Harps, which is my my um, uh, consortium. It's a, a music entertainment referral network comprised of the best professional harpists in the greater Boston area. And we have people from all over, and we work with the best professional violinists, cellists, um, jazz players, everybody wants to work with us because they too are have finding even if they're great instrumentalists, they're not always playing. I mean, how many how many services in the Boston Lyric Opera, et cetera? So all of those people want to come and play for us. It's great. I mean, it's really fun and um, it's very rewarding for me. More importantly, to 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 um, assist the young harpists who come to Berkeley because. They are tomorrow. But um, the best part about, for example, running the program at Berkeley, we started it in January of 2002. So it's 16 years. It's incredible. Wow. So, yeah, I was going to ask in terms of kind of where Gilded Harps and, and the harp program at Berkeley kind of overlapped or intersected or which came first? The Gilded Harps came first. Okay. Because we were very, very tired of being taken advantage of. When yeah. I was first out of school with my undergraduate from New England Conservatory, um, the agents in those days, as I joke when dinosaurs roamed free, um, they um, they took terrible advantage of us. Terrible. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did an event for Senator Kennedy at the Parker House. The event play paid $150, and they got 50 <laughs> That didn't fly very well. Mm -hmm. So we all got together. There were three of us who got together and started the Gilded Harps, and then eventually it fell to me. But now, the agents actually um, ask us what we want. Wow. All of them do. Really. I'm so, so lucky now. And, and we're all very pleased because I don't care what their commission is as long as we get what we asked for. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And if we all sort of say, um, this is what we charge, and we don't undercut each other like crazy, then it all works. And Boston is a small enough big city that we respect each other. So we're it's great. It's great and it works. Yeah. And it just sounds like you really were instrumental. Sorry. You know, that always happens in these in these interviews with musicians, instrumental, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but for shifting the narrative and for really changing the culture of of kind of how business is done. So I mean there's an entrepreneurial side to this too, um, that's fascinating. And I wonder kind of how that fed into the creation of the Heart program here at Berkeley. Um, you know, I'm sure you've learned like many countless lessons um, working with Gilded Harps and just and professionally on your own. So I'm just interested in, in how that helped you set up the program here and kind of what makes it distinctive. Well, there are many things that make the Harp program different from other programs all across the country and in the world. 
Um, Matt, again, Matt Morvolio was, um, he was integral into in having it. Um, he introduced it with Gary Burton's permission and Lee Burke's permission by saying that if he if they wanted to have a symphony orchestra, we had to have a harp, which means we had to teach harp at school. And there were a dozen people who applied for the position, and I got it. So I was really pleased. Matt Glazer um, hired me, and um, so I'm in the string department. And uh, we had an adjustment period, but it, we started with one. And at one time, we had as many as 15 harpists. And the, the beauty of the program at Berkeley is, well, one of them, is that we have many disciplines. And, of course, you've been around, Ryan, so you know that, that people don't come to Berkeley necessarily to be a principal soloist in an orchestra. <laughs> That's kind of the last thing they would come here for. But um, they come for uh, performance, of course, but music business, um, music therapy, right, um, all kinds of things, uh, music technology, MP&E. So I've had I've had harp players and harp students of all disciplines, and um, I actually have one coming in this fall, who is a really fine composer who really wants to be a film composer. Hmm. So that's been really exciting to. She's my one of my private students um, during high school, but I've had some really terrific students, including Pia Salvia, Marie Maria, and she's doing really well all over right. Europe and Germany and everywhere. Um, but. Uh, Charles Overton, one of my recent graduates, is incredible. He's actually playing um, at the festival that I'm going to next week. Mm. He's been playing with the Boston Symphony as second harp. Um, I've been hiring him. He's going to play on the six harp gig at the so. Boston Public Library. But it's been great, and I have many students who've gone off to do music therapy. Um, one of my music therapy students is just coming back now from a tour with a band from India. She's a rock star in India now, Jessica Brizuela. So, um, but they—they're all working, which I'm very pleased. They're not only just—they're not only really working, but they're working with their instrument, and they're working in the field that they—that they studied. Which, I mean, that sounds kind of normal, right? If you're an engineer, you get an engineering degree, and then you get an engineering job. But how often do musicians get a music degree and then they go work in something else? You spend all that time, all that money, mm -hmm. all that trouble, all those hours, all those years, and then you do something else? Mm. That seems sad. Mm -hmm. So they're doing what they do and doing really, really well. So I'm, I'm, I'm very, very uh, pleased with how they've, they've been versatile and creative and carved out their own niche. I'm, I'm curious, too, kind of how... Because, I mean, that, that speaks to the success of the approach that you're taking. And I wonder sort of the specifics of, like, you talked about how, you know, you're not going to give a D to creativity, but at the same time, you're kind of in both worlds in, in, a, in the classical setting where you've, you've got to, you know, perfection is key. And those, that, they're very different mindsets. And I wonder how do you teach your students to kind of roll with both? Well, it's actually pretty simple. I have to say, it's pretty simple. It's all about discipline. Whatever you do, and this is one thing that I try to instill in them from the beginning. And there are a few um, students in the beginning, they fight me. Like, oh, I don't want to do that. But it's really, really important that whatever you do, you have a dedication to it and a uh, discipline. Because we as musicians, aren't we? We have self-discipline. It's not like you're going to go punch a clock and do your thing and maybe check out later. If you're going to be an artist, 
where you're going to have a career in music, especially if it's off the grid a little bit, then you have to really push and you have to be excellent at whatever you choose to do. So my standards are high, really high. If you want an A in my class, you really have to work. I'll give you an A, but you have to really work for it. You have to really, really, really work for it. So it's excellence in whatever you do and a dedication. And and let's face it, nobody wants to hear what you're doing if it's not the best product that you can make. You know, and everybody has different abilities, but at the same time, you work toward being the very best you can, and you strive and strive to to hone your craft. That's what we're here for. I mean, I'm still doing it. They, uh, they, when I tell them that I'm taking drum lessons from Jerry Leak, they're like, really? <laughs> or I'm going to take this class or that class where I wouldn't miss seeing Ron Carter doing a master class. They're looking at me like, really? No, because life learning is life learning. Mm-hmm. You always want to glean something from somebody. I love going to master classes and, and, and other classes and, and learning from my colleagues and friends and people I admire, you know, the Ron Carters of the world, the, the Rini Rosnesses of the world. I mean, it's really important to, to listen and, and learn and try. And so if they do that and they really work, you know, I make them do um, classical music because there's nothing better for your technique than classical music. So we do we do that, and then we do lots of other technique. Um, I wrote that book, uh, Berkeley Harp, primarily for that, so they would have a real sort of a, a, a template from which to start working. Because there are a lot of people who, you know, they look at jazz or any impro- improvised music and think, okay, well, it's just God's gift. You know, if you have it, you have it. No. And my mantra is, if I can do it, honey, you can do it. (laughs) But it takes a long time. It takes a long time. And you have to have the discipline and you have the immense desire. And then you it's like it's a language, as you know. It's a language like anything. If you're gonna speak jazz, then you have to speak with the right accent. Mm. So it's so that's what we do. We do it just like you would learn French, Spanish, Italian, whatever. It's the same kind of thing. Repetition, repetition, listening, listening. Saying again, using it in a sentence. You know, it's not enough if you know what a sharp nine is. You have to use it in a sentence. Otherwise, you're not going to use it in your pieces, are you? So I make them do that. So it's really fun for them. You know, and then they and then they have this vocabulary that the the regular folk from from Berkeley when they're in a, an ensemble or they're playing a concert, they're like, "What? <laughs> that came out of you?" <laughs> so it's really great. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, I was going to kind of wrap up by asking kind of like, a, you know, your vision for, for harp music, but I feel like you've kind of, you've laid it out in, in this really interesting way. It's like, you're not going to flunk out with creativity, but you ain't going to make an A unless you're disciplined, you know? And I think I love that, that that, <laughs> that, that feels like a like pretty good life lesson right there. And also uh, your life lesson of never being done, of always going after new things. Um, so I wonder maybe um, we can we can wrap up by just maybe talking about what your favorite part of the, of the creative process is. I mean, is it when... When you're alone working out ideas, is it is it more of a collaborative thing? But just that thing that kind of really, uh, you know, gets you into that artist mindset and, and really you find that jag. Oh, it's, well, there's everything. But the, the important thing is is that everybody has to be versatile and look ahead. And, and the creative process is all about um, just seeing what's out there, fooling around, 
you know. And even my little kids in my Sudbury studio, we do that. I, I make sure, and even the, the adult beginners, go fool around. Mm. Go fool around on your instrument. Don't just go and it's a task and you punch in and punch out. Just fool around, and that's where the creativity comes from. Mm. Let's try this. Let's try that. Let's, let's put a, um, a distortion pedal on it. What's that going to sound like? So it's really fun. Yeah. It's exploration, and we never stop learning and trying and experimenting. And, and I think then, then it's a joy for your instrument. It should never be work. It should always be the other four-letter word, play. That's great. I love that. I think that's a, that's a perfect place to, to take us out. Um, I'd love to hear a little more music. I, I, would, I wouldn't mind um, if you would do that. But otherwise, Felice, thanks so much for, uh, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been just a pleasure and an honor to be part of the Burton. Oh, and an honor to, to talk to you on it. So thanks again. Um, and then also maybe if there is a song, do you have a specific one? That you oh, I was think thinking of? that perhaps um, we could have a song from Berkeley Harp. Because I, I did all the songs, I composed all the songs in the book. So I was thinking perhaps Opening Day, which features Marco Pignataro, my sax player, um, who's from Bologna, who runs the Berkeley um, Jazz uh, Global Jazz Institute. So it features him um, and me, and I wrote it for the opening day of the Red Sox several years ago. Awesome. Great. Well, let's go out with Opening Day. Thank you. This episode was engineered by Jimmy Lim in partnership with The Burn. I'm Brian Paris, and this is Sounds of Berkeley.